we learnt a lot from the first 18 months, but I think now we've had plenty of time to bring and integrate our strategies and start functioning as one force to fight this battle rather than fighting this battle, you know, through silos. And, and that's essentially what we have. We have, um, we have the federal government, we have the state government, we have providers. Still to this day, we're still operating in silos. And to me, it's insane. Uh, I know I totally appreciate that there's, you know, uh, legal ramifications, there's red tape. But if this isn't a time to bring all these groups together and fight the one fire on the one front, I don't know, you know, what is. Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. Hello there, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Ash, or Ashley Deneef, if you want to be formal. I hope you're feeling footloose and COVID-free today for another episode. And fancy that, today's conversation is all about the COVID response in Australian aged care. Now, this is a bit of a first for us. We've been interviewing prominent and interesting folk from the aged care industry for the last year and a bit, and we've yet to have a conversation focused entirely on COVID. But the day has come. And helping us take a look at the response so far and the future of COVID and aged care is Chris Mamorellis, CEO of Widen. COVID has impacted the industry in so many profound ways. And though we get pretty deep with this conversation, we've still only just scratched the surface. One topic we do focus on a lot, which you may relate to or find interesting, is the confusing and problematic communication throughout the COVID response from the various levels of government. Chris and the Widen team have recently released a paper identifying some recurrent problems and proposing some solutions, which you'll hear about in the episode. I should say as well that this interview was recorded in mid-October 2020, when New South Wales and Victoria were emerging from lockdowns and already COVID facts have changed, they'd have a tendency to do that, including a mention of booster shots, which has been recently approved nationwide. Before we jump into it, I wanted to say firstly, thanks. Thanks very much for listening. If you're a returning listener, thanks for coming back. And if it's your first time, thanks, welcome. We hope you stick around. Secondly, we want to say if there's a guest or topic that you think would be a great fit for our third season, which starts in 2022, shoot us an email through to ace podcast. That's A-C-E podcast at silveradventures.com.au. Alrighty, that's enough from me. Here's the interview with Chris Mamorellis. Chris, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, we're really happy to have you. Could you maybe give us a quick intro to yourself and, and your work? So I'm uh, the, the CEO at uh, Witten Aged Care. We are a large not-for-profit aged care provider. We've been around for almost 75 years now. We have a large footprint in regional um, Australia, regional New South Wales and Queensland. We also have a large campus in Sydney, probably one of the largest in Australia with, with almost 500 residents that we're caring for on site. Wow. And we, we focus on residential aged care, uh, home, community care and, and retirement living. So we, we offer a span of services there as well. And I think we're, we're pretty proud of the way we deliver our care. We've been um, innovating our model of care. We've pioneered relationship-based care. 
We've also been um, involved in pro providing um, expert advice at the Royal Commission on a number of occasions as well. So we're a pretty active member in, um, in the aged care community, as well as providing services to a lot of really important communities that, that we're a part of. Yeah, that's fantastic. Listeners of the show will know that we haven't really ever focused on COVID. We skirted around the issue. It feels a bit like everywhere you look at in life at the moment, it's COVID all the time. But uh, what would be really helpful, I think, maybe you can take us back to March 2020 and the arrival of COVID and maybe the first few months of adjusting to that. What was that like in the facilities? I've got to stretch my mind back because so much <laughs> yeah. has happened since then. When you go back, obviously there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, at that point in time, at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't know what, what to expect. And, and we've seen these things happen before where they brush over and, and it's mm. more of a, an overseas thing. But um, for, for us, I think as the level of risk started to increase and we started to realise that this is impacting and, and think that we, we can't sort of ignore what's going on and that the advice you're getting from government and, and all of that started to ramp up, I think the first thing you had to do, um, and remember I'm stretching my memory here, but mm -hmm. the, I think the first thing you had to do was you had to take a bit of a new mindset. So all, a lot of the things that you were working on, a lot of the bigger plans, the bigger projects, where, where your resources and your people were focusing, a lot of that just came to a bit of a standstill. You know, we've, we've said we've been in survival mode for the last couple of years, I think as a sector. I know we didn't. We've had to go into this sort of crisis slash survival mode and that's what happened the the, the team planning uh, structures resources all of that started to shift into this kind of crisis management uh, adapting to new protocols um, you know things like getting PPE management to a whole new level to what we were used to different risk management protocols team meeting structures all this huge level of change and and it didn't happen overnight. Mm. It started to just creep in. And then I think as we began to understand the virus, the pandemic, as science and medicine was catching up and then we were being informed about that. So, you know, then vaccination strategies started to appear and we, we, we were really pushing to get all of our residents vaccinated and all that sort of thing. I think it, it all just started to creep up on us. And I, I think that with the first wave of COVID, we probably went through, I guess, a six to 12 month period and then that became operationalised. We operationalised that within about 12 months. Yeah. But th this was pre-Delta and we had that pause pre-Delta where I remember um, even things like board reporting, all of that, that changed and had this huge focus where you're normally focusing on strategy and a lot of your innovation and your projects and your, your care plans and a lot of that sort of stuff. It focused, it had this focus on... Um, the COVID crisis management and towards the end of that first sort of eight to 12 months, we started saying, okay, we're now starting to operationalise this. This is becoming BAU. We've got all these screening protocols, PPE, it's all becoming BAU. And we just started to get a sniff of being able to get back in and focus on what, what is most important, all of our resident and employee-centric projects and all of that. Mm. We started to get back into that. And you know, I guess it wasn't long after then this Delta wave hit us, you know. So yeah, that's, that's kind of my recollection. As I said, we have so much water has gone under the bridge in that <laughs> period, so much yeah. that it seems like a millennium ago when, when all that sort of thing was going on. But I guess that's my recollection of it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the kind of shifting goalposts throughout it as well and feeling like, oh, we're we coming out, are we going in, what's going to happen 
So that lull in between the first wave and the Delta wave, did that feel, was there kind of an optimism amongst the the company that things might start to turn and we can put some of this behind us? We're very risk averse Mm. in aged care. You know, it's all about our residents and employees and our residents are so vulnerable. We're in a lot of areas where community transmission's been high, particularly in the Sydney metro area. So you started to get a little bit of optimism, but what was a little scary at the time was that the the government and the regulators and the people around us just went very quiet on on a, on a number of fronts. And I think that, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if they were over-optimistic or what it was, but we started talking about complacency and that we can't be complacent at that point in time. So I think that we were a little bit on edge. We, we really had to continue that focus on residency employees. Remember, residents had gone through lockdowns and things like that. So we really wanted to bring people back into our homes, visitations and all of that sort of thing. So yes, there was optimism. However, it was really about reinforcing that we can't be complacent. And I think I was really glad that we took that approach because obviously then the Delta wave came along. Yeah, and this is uh, this is all very timely as New South Wales has just had Freedom Day and, and things are being lifted. I, I do want to touch back on that in, in a moment and talk about the future. But beforehand, did Widden have any outbreaks in any of their facilities? Thankfully, touch wood, we, we had um, no outbreaks. We've had numerous close calls. We've had um, residents come back from hospitals who were exposed to um, COVID positive people, whether they be employees, and and we've had to isolate them and and we've had to do things like that. But thankfully, we actually haven't had an outbreak in one of our homes. And and I will say, in in saying that, we had really put a lot of additional protocols. Look, I, I say that To date, we've been able to achieve that through a lot of hard work, protocols, Mm -hmm. our practices as well, and there's luck. There's been some luck involved because we had plenty of near misses. Mm. Even in the first, when the first outbreak occurred, my recollection is we had that Ruby Princess, we had actually someone come off the boat and breach a regulation and and come onto the site we had to fend them away and we've had some really close calls um, with it. But thankfully, um, as I said, I think because of the hard work and with some luck, so far, we've been able to um, keep it at bay. Yeah, it is early days and, and everybody is, is doing the best they can. Of course, there is there are factors outside of our control as well. I'm wondering then when you started, you know, in this process of the pandemic is going to be a real threat, it's going to be a real upsetting factor in, in business as usual. How did the regulations come from government and from other bodies to Widen and how they interpret it? What's the communication like there? Look, I think that when you look at the first maybe 12 to 18 months of this, government were learning. Obviously, government were were evolving practices, evolving strategies, modifying uh, their directions, even at a legal on, on the legal front with the laws and things. It was all happening on the fly. Mm. And, and I think that's understandable. It's, it's new territory. So, you know, I guess if you look at um, uh, things like visitations and PPE protocols, there'd be some guidance that would come out. They would probably panel beat that uh, among themselves. There'd be some industry forums at times where they'd ask for feedback from industry. And eventually uh, a decision would be made. Sometimes it took a bit too long to get that decision mm. and you would have to act and just say, well, bugger this, we're going to do something. And then the direction would come out. And then you'd get a direction just saying employees must be wearing XYZ PPE, visitations are limited to this sort of thing, or, you know, you'd get those directions coming out 
So it was this policy on the fly and it probably had to be given the volatile nature and the unknown. There's so much uncertainty about the virus. That, that's kind of what we have probably seen for that first 12 to 18 months and maybe the last sort of six months, a lot of those practices then became embedded in what we're doing. However, as we push on, we need to start refining those practices in the new world we're in now as well. Yeah, so if this policy, you know, it's a constant evolution and there would have been some times there was uncertainty and trying to protect your residents and protect your staff, where were you looking to for, for guidance on the right step if regulations weren't at the point where you felt like they were enough? Predominantly, we work with our masters of the Commonwealth government so that we're federally funded, federally regulated. So mm-hmm. that's usually your first point of call is working with federal agencies to, to get support. We also work quite closely with our state health counterparts as well. So in our case, largely New South Wales Health and Queensland Health. So there's some interactions going on there. Then there are other professional advisory groups all over the place, our peaks as well. So mm-hmm. you've probably got multiple layers that you can reach out to. And, and so that's, that's one layer. Uh, what I've seen, which has been beautiful, and it's always been a part of the way we do things anyway at Widden, is we're part of a number of peer networks, uh, generally informal. So we you know, within the team, we have different peer networks. And that was always... A, just a collaborative group of people that work together or, and, and meet regularly just to discuss issues to help each other. And that's been something that's been going on for a while. Mm-hmm. But what's been really nice to see are those peer groups coming together now during COVID and really helping each other, discussing different strategies, discussing um, different practices and collaborating and just, you know, sharing information. That's been really helpful because there's a lot of idea sharing that was actually operationalised both ways that we were able to provide others and, and them to us. And then we look to ourselves that, that there were times where we just weren't happy with, uh, you know, the, the rapid antigen test is a great example of that because mm-hmm. the rapid antigen tests were this emerging technology, I guess, that could be deployed and used in the fight against COVID or at least a, a, a really valuable tool to, to use in screening among a suite of other things. There was no discussion about it in aged care. It wasn't available. No one was really talking about it. We found suppliers, we found experts in the field, we did it ourselves, and we went to government and said, would you back us in a trial, which they agreed to, Uh, and that was a really nice um, example of how we were able to bring an innovation um, ourselves to the table that then from our trial, we saw the Department of Health uh, then go uh, conduct the trial with maybe over a dozen providers and then start distributing the rapid antigen tests at no cost to providers in the sector out of a government stockpile. Mm. That was a really good example of how we brought something to the table as well. Cool. Yeah, that's it's a nice give and take. I, I think if I was in that position, partly I would feel like it's great that there is openness to communication and that you can bring ideas, but I would also feel like my responsibility is to care for my residents and my staff. Why does it need to come from me and from my team to do something for the better of everybody else? Why is there not the leadership at the top to bring this in? Yeah, look, I think I think it's fair to say, you know, we, we have state and federal governments and regulators who are very well resourced around us. And there's an expectation that they're going to deliver on, on a number of fronts and, and they're really going to support us to a certain standard and a certain level. I think that's a fair expectation. I don't think it's unreasonable for providers to be able to innovate and to bring things to the table as well mm-hmm. because I said we have different insights, we have different experiences, lots of different skill sets. And, and one of the most important um, areas is just, just coming from the team on the ground 
and, and I can give you one example where the, the, the government had changed visa restrictions uh, at one point, I think it was for students where they had they had restricted hours they were able to work, and they said they said sort of, hey, in this pandemic, we're going to open that up, mm-hmm. and 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 so they can work longer. You can have more access to these cl- clinical staff who are students. They put an expiry date on that, and so six months later, I just had one of my managers say to me. You know, if they just moved, got rid of that expiry date, I'd probably have access to another 18 full-time equivalent staff and that's all they have to do. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't have known that. And so that you could feed that back up to the government and they actually changed it. We sent them some advice, they changed it. And, and those little insights that you get make a big difference. So, yeah, that was really valuable. Yeah, that's, that's a great example. What you mentioned before this, the peer community where you guys are exchanging ideas. I'm guessing this is probably across providers. Can you give us some specific examples of things that you're talking about, issues that have been brought up? So when I, when I talk about those peer communities, just to give you an idea, so I'm part of a, a it's an informal CEO network with you know up to up to ten CEOs, and we catch up. My um, COO, she's part of a, a network like that, and and so on. You might have a HR network and a technology network, and in our examples, they're informal. We, we might catch up once monthly. So through those sort of meetings and sessions, we might have been talking. I mean, the, again, the rapid antigen test is a great example of because we started it, we had a lot of people then in, in my network asking me, oh, you know, how's it working? What's the cost? What do you need operationally, procedurally? So we shared a lot of information. We ended up eventually doing a paper because we were part of a trial and then and we shared that with them. So rapid antigen test was probably a good example, but you you may discuss PPE and what, what is the best, you know, in terms of staff, how do you get the balance right between protection but also ensuring that we're not cutting ourselves off from from our residents from a well-being perspective. Mm. There are lots of discussions about that, workforce strategies, uh, what are we doing to support our workforce, um, retention payments. There's lots of different discussions that are going on and we're probably meeting every month. So as the environment is changing around us, Someone else would come to the table and and say, "Well, look at this new direction we've got. How are you? How are you adapting that?" Where you know, so, and outside of that, I think you've got the professional discussions that are going on about strategies, about procedures, and things like that. But for each of those peer networks, those groups of people, just like the frontline employees, are under a lot of pressure, a lot of decision making, a lot of responsibility. Mm. So just being able to check in on each other, sh- you know, share experiences. I'm not alone in this. Um, so from, just from a wellbeing support perspective, I think it was valuable as well. And it, it still is. This episode is sponsored by Ending Loneliness Together. I just felt a sadness inside. I've never spoken to anyone about feeling lonely. I've never spoken to my, my family. I think I always try to show I'm well, especially to the kids. They'd never imagine that I felt lonely. Over 5 million Australians are lonely. While we all feel lonely from time to time, longer periods of loneliness are damaging to our health and well-being. Ending Loneliness Together is a national Australian charity with the vision to halve chronic loneliness by 2030. We all have a role to play in ending loneliness. Consider making a donation, becoming a member, or sharing your story with others. Go to www.endingloneliness.com.au for more information. 
Now, recently you put out a paper online about the the lack of an integrated approach in dealing with COVID. Can you give us a bit of an overview of the paper and, and maybe what are some of the challenges that you've exposed throughout the process? Yeah, as Freedom Day really was approaching, so in, in New South Wales and uh, and in Sydney, we'd been in lo- lockdown for three months and we started to approach this Freedom Day and people started talking about Freedom Day and that's where the restrictions were going to be uh, dropped and, and or reduced and we were very supportive of that. It was time. What's happening is while the community is starting to free up and while the community is starting to enjoy some new freedoms, there still remains a lot of risk, even in a double-vaxxed sort of uh, society, to residents. Residents are, are still really vulnerable. Mm. We haven't had booster shots for residents and, and vis- residents were among the first to uh, receive the vaccine you know, many months ago now. Yeah. So we're really concerned about the, the level of exposure as visitors come in, employees, all of that sort of thing. So with that concern and that risk starting to bubble around, what surprised me was that, you know, particularly during that three-month lockdown, we learnt a lot from the first 18 months. Why wasn't the health ecosystem coming together, federal, state, regulators, learning from what we had done in the past and saying we can do a better job because we certainly can. And, And as I said earlier, I can accept the journey we've been on and the mistakes made through that evolutionary process. Mm -hmm. But I think now we've had plenty of time to bring and integrate our strategies and start functioning as one force to fight this battle rather than fighting this battle, you know, through silos. And and that's essentially what we have. We have um, have the federal government, we have the state government, we have providers. And then within each of those silos, there are different layers. Federal government has... Department of Health and the Quality Commission, you know, State Health has got LHDs and, and the various bodies in there. And still to this day, we're still operating in silos. And to me, it's insane. Uh, I know I totally appreciate that there's, you know, uh, legal ramifications, there's red tape. Um, but if this isn't a time to bring all these groups together and fight the one fire on the one front, I don't know, you know, what is. Mm. That's great. Can you maybe elaborate maybe on these the silos and is it that there's things are being doubled up on? Is it there's conflicting advice or is it a lack of communication between the different elements? It's probably all of the above. Um, I think that um, when I draw on some of these experiences that we've had in the in the past, I think that if we can get everyone together, if we can get state and federal agencies and regulators together and and, and simply decide on protocols in terms of uh, who's managing what, mm. who's, who's taking charge of what front, of, on what strategy, on what direction, that in itself would be great. So, for example, if there's an outbreak or if we've got areas of concern where we're heating up procedures and protocols, you don't want to be receiving directions from the Department of Health and then you don't want to be receiving additional uh, directions from State Health and then the LHD giving you other directions. Mm. You'd much rather, if you have an outbreak, you're working exclusively um, with, say, State Health, Quality Commission and the Department of Health back off to a certain extent so you can manage that situation. Um, and, and you know, you can't have two or three masters trying to give this one, one entity direction. I think that there's some really simple things that I think need to be addressed that aren't being discussed. Um, when I think of some of the regional locations that, that we're in, those communities are at risk. Resources are scarce in those communities. You might have populations of, say, four, five, ten thousand 10,000 people even. Mm. You've got an aged care provider and you've got a hospital and you're the two largest employers. You both have 
assets and resources that can be shared. You both have laundries and kitchens. You both have skilled staff, registered nurses um, there. If one or the other is in trouble, you should have a, a, an MO, a mem- memorandum of understanding. You, have a, you should have a combined strategy to work together mm-hmm. so that you understand exactly what each party is going to do. What we find ourselves happening is that there are shortages of staff. There's no communication really about, you know, if, if your kitchen, if you had an outbreak and you couldn't use your kitchen, well, we'll, we'll use ours and here's how it'll work and here are the logistics around there. This sort of forward planning, which kind of seems very simple, it's just not occurring in those situations. So I think that this sort of collaborative strategies at a local level, they need to be endorsed by by the higher powers. So you need endorsement from above and you need to put a, a blanket approach across the whole of your jurisdiction. If you look at New South Wales, for example, that we operate in, there might be, I, I don't know, eight to ten different LHDs that we're operating in, mm-hmm. and there are inconsistencies across each LHD. Each local health district has a different approach or you get mixed messaging d- despite the directions that are coming back from state health or or the Department of Health. So we can't afford any more, really. I mean, we, we couldn't afford it previously, but as you go forward, you need to have all these things ironed out. There's been plenty of opportunities, and that was really I was calling out in this paper that to, to really come together and have a unified, integrated strategy across federal and health, uh, federal and state health, mm. working with providers to fight this fight going forward. It's, it just doesn't make sense that we're not having those conversations now. Yeah, it sounds like we're still in crisis mode and it's still a scramble to get whatever done that we can as quickly as we can without a thought for the efficiency. Looking to the future now and, and past Freedom Day, it strikes me as... Uh, it's not really Freedom Day for a good portion of the society, and especially for our industry. Not much is going to change immediately, is it? Look, I mean, um, not drastically. If you look at visitations, for example, we've opened up visitations, but there's still some restrictions around that. You need to be tight on PPE, on your screening protocols, on clinical and infection control practices. This isn't going away anytime soon. I mean, that applies to a supermarket now, let alone mm. in, a, in, in a very vulnerable aged care home. So having gone out to our home this week, we made the decision with our employees, at least in the initial weeks of Freedom Day, we are in really um, heavy PPE. Um, we, we've really equipped them quite heavily in PPE with screens, with uh, P2 masks. So we've gone over and above mm-hmm. what's required because we're just concerned about this initial risk and we're going to monitor it. So so it's not going away for aged care. I'm really concerned about the regions mm. in terms of their the resources out there, in terms of being able to, you know, service the community, not just aged care, but if we have an outbreak and, and, and aged care is relying on the local hospital, which is typically small, that really concerns me as well. So I think that, again, state, federal governments, we really need to have a focus area in these regional communities to make sure we're, we're doing everything we can to prepare. And so, sometimes, I, th- I look, I'm not a preacher of doom. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I, th- I hear myself and I think, oh, you know, it's not about a preacher being, you know, sort of looking, looking at it through, you know, in this sort of dark frame or dark lens. But when you're responsible, which is what I am, the buck stops with me for, you know, over 2,000 people, whether they're in, we're caring for them in, a, in our homes or at home, um, and three, nearly 3,000 employees, and I look at the regional communities, some really vulnerable places like Burke and Walgett and Weewar, which are, you know, really uh, vulnerable communities in terms of the resources and the assets they have out there to, to support them, 
I will t- always take a very risk-heavy approach to protecting those people. So just just put it out there. That's really the the angle that I'm that I'm coming from. But yeah, we, we have a lot more to do. We've got to be cautious. We've got to take steps. I think the other piece that that needs to be called out, which is has always been there, is well-being, well-being of residents. Mm. And, and well-being of, of employees. And, and having walked around our home and gone and visit some of my friends, some of the residents that I know there quite well um, this week, it's so um, disengaging having a P2 mask on and I, you know, I wear glasses and then I've got the screen over me, um, the face shield over me as well. It's very disengaging. Mm. And it's someone who I know, a couple of people I know really well, they said, who, who is that? Who is that? And I had to say to Chris, you know, and... It's very hard, but I guess we've kept them safe and we're just trying to get this very delicate balance right. So I think that if community transmission, as we see community transition start to decline, as we see a positive impact from double vaccination in the community, then I'm hoping we can slowly step the the, the levels of normality up Mm. um, in the aged care setting. But we have to be cautious and it will take a bit more time. Yeah, absolutely. And Thank you for outlining that balance. I've, I've often wondered about that, that you need to, you do need to preserve well-being and make it a life worth living wherever the person is, oh, yeah. but you need to keep people safe as well. How have you guys approached keeping people connected within communities and keeping life entertaining within a, a home? Yeah, look, it's not been easy. I mean, I remember in that first wave, we called them risk-free risk-free visits where, and a lot of providers started doing this, where you were using, you know, our windows and, and glass barriers and things like that mm. to facilitate the um, families coming in and visiting and all that sort of stuff. We, we brought in some technology, so um, we were part of a development of an app that needs support. So, you know, residents still need support. They'll need a person to help them launch it in many cases and things like that. But the, the app provided that sort of um, Skype, FaceTime sort of functionality so families could mm-hmm. connect while they were locked out. We sort of supported a lot of different communication practices between families and residents as well. Um, so I guess you're doing as much as you can, but the reality is, and, and I need to call this out, it's not perfect. You, I, I don't think that... I would have liked to do a lot more. Mm. I would have liked to have seen a lot more happen. I'm sure a lot of other providers uh, would have liked to do that as well. The two things you have to factor in, or maybe three things, is that, one, borders shut, so we lost access to, to staff. Um, mm-hmm. We started seeing workforce furloughing, um, staff having to go into um, self-quarantine and self-isolation because of exposure, and we saw sick leave and attendance, um, attendance go down, sick leave increase. Because there was apprehension, people had families at home. I can't blame employees for that. So rosters were were really under a lot of pressure. And on top of it, you had all these sort of operational challenges. So people had to work harder, were doing other jobs, screening and things like that. Mm. So the workforce was really under pressure. And when they're under pressure, things like activities and and those sorts of areas, the reality is you probably can't give them the focus that you want. And from a women perspective, we pioneered things like relationship-based care, a whole stack of different programs. We, we revitalised our model of care. It's the reason that we exist. It's, it's what we wake up for every day. This has been really hard 
Because you can't, it's very hard to you push your people that hard to say, we need to do more on the wellbeing front, we need to do more activities when they're already short-staffed and under pressure. So we tried to get the balance as, as well as we could. We couldn't bring volunteers in to help either. Mm. So it's a challenging situation. Anyone tells you, it's, it, you know, they came up with a perfect solution is kidding themselves. If we had access to more workers, if the volunteers could have come in and we had the borders open, it probably would have helped. I can't believe when I look back, we still managed to do, we launched a, a cooking program with residents um, during that period mm-hmm. um, as, as one example. We ran a couple of other programs um, as well. We still managed to have a lot of celebrations for different events that occurred during the time. But but obviously it was a condensed version of what we, we normally would have done. So yeah, that, putting that well-being of employees and residents at the forefront is, has always been important, but very challenging during this time as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Chris, we're almost out of time. I wanted to ask you going forward for the next six months, what are you and the leadership team looking towards? What's on the horizon, do you think? Well, interestingly enough, and, and probably not dissimilar to that conversation we just had about well-being, I really want to see us get back to some level of normality in terms of our, our strategy and our directions as an organisation. So we, as I said, we're a not-for-profit organisation, we exist for two reasons, our employees, our people, and and the people we care for. That's why we exist. Mm. And in this survival mode over the last sort of period of time, a couple of years really, we haven't been able to really engage as heavily in in those some of those directions that we had on the cards. We had a number of care programs, different care programs, innovation that we've been working on. We've got new developments that we're working on as well. So we've got a, a, a host of employee-centric programs as well. A lot of this stuff has kind of had to take um, you know a back seat because of the crisis management. So what we are trying to do is, as best we can, operationalise the COVID management, the COVID strategies, operationalise that while ensuring that we're doing our very best to minimise risk. Mm. But at the same time, we're trying to breathe life back into our purpose, breathe life back into our strategies and, and get those things back on the table. And if a quarter of our time has been spent on that in the past two years, because, you know, 75% has been on crisis management, I'd like to see that become 50, 60, 70, 80% as we go forward, mm-hmm. because that, again, that's why we exist. Obviously, we're dependent on what happens with COVID. Are there new strains? What happens with community transmission? How well do we manage it? How well is it managed around us? But also I said I think that if we're serious about our the people we care for and the people providing that care, those people around us, that health ecosystem has to come together now and do a much better job uh, going forward. We can excuse, as I said before, we understand what's happened in the past. We need them to come together to a much better degree to support the industry as a whole mm. and our residents and people going forward. So... I think that we are dependent to, to some extent, but Widden will always do our best to control our own destiny as well. And we need to come back to some of those key strategic directions now going forward to, to benefit those key stakeholders, our people and our, and our residents. Yeah, fantastic. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Where can people find out more about what we've been talking about and the report that you released recently? 
Yeah, so the report itself, I, I've posted that on my LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. You can just look up Chris Mamarellis on, on LinkedIn and you'll find that and a lot of other stuff on Widden. There's also a lot of information on our website, widden.com.au. Um, you'll be able to find some information there and any sort of searches should be able to take you to, to Widden. And I believe that there's a lot of work going on in the background. Let's just keep our fingers crossed that it doesn't take months. Over the coming weeks, we see some action mm. and we get some positive results uh, for the benefit of the whole industry. Yeah, fantastic. Chris, thanks for your time today. Yeah, pleasure, Ash. Thank you. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Age Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you're enjoying it, please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you're interested in finding out how immersive virtual reality experiences can enrich the lives of older adults, visit the Silver Adventures website today at www.silveradventures.com.au. See you next week.